Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, a Kerry sailor follows the course of the Cork sailor who discovered Antarctica. It's a type of experience which is exceptional, but also accessible to anyone with a reasonable level of fitness, whether you're sailing or a mountain climber or just like getting into the outdoors. Uh, it's an experience which really is once in a lifetime. Damien Foxhall, Ireland's renowned world sailor, is heading for Antarctica. And brother Anthony Keane from Glenstall Abbey has reasons for taking an interest in the sea. I think when we go to heaven, there will be a serious interrogation at the gates with St. Peter and one question might be did you see the sea or what did you think of the sea? This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yall on the East Cork coastline and bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland, an island people, a community that is bounded by the seas around us. And on this edition we welcome our 16th station to this community of the sea, Eris FM in Mayo, based in Belmullet in the Barony of Eris in Northwest County Mayo. Welcome aboard, the listeners of Eris FM. It's good to have you with us. Like many broadcasters, I remember Gay Byrne from my time in RTE. And the morning my phone rang at home from his radio programme when he wanted to discuss a report I'd done about the neglect of the maritime sphere by government. For about a quarter of an hour we did so, and I learned of his own interest in marine affairs and about his father on the Guinness barges on the Liffey in Dublin. Another man who's spoken wonderfully about the maritime sphere is Brother Anthony Keane of Glenstall Abbey, who was very involved in the restoration of the island, Ireland's last wooden schooner, which earlier this year sailed to Iceland and back to Limerick, where he is also actively involved in the AK Island Boat Building School, which teaches the skills of boat building. At Kilrush Boatyard in County Clare, during the launch of another restored historic yacht, the Dublin Bay 21 Nanine, which dates back to 1905, he spoke about boats and the sea. This boat is a work of wisdom. There is within creation, within the land and the sea, the spirit of wisdom by which it was made. She is a breath of the power of God, pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. All of which, I think, makes this boat a perfect icon of everything that is good and beautiful about life. It is an amazing privilege for people to be able 
to perform such miracles because they are miracles of transformation. They are miracles of changing one thing into another, changing land creatures like timber and epoxy into a sea creature which floats over the sea. In that change and transformation, one can see the continuity of the power of creativity. Then you have the sea, vast and wide, with its moving swarms past counting, living things great and small. The ships are moving there, and the monsters God made to play with. So all of that allows those who go to sea in boats and those who are involved in making them to take part in the ultimate and essential playfulness of all creation. Some people might say that boats are very useful things. They are good for transporting goods and for transporting passengers, people, but they are fundamentally perhaps a way for men to escape from the house and for women to get them out of the way, I suppose. They are fundamentally instruments of play so that we can admire the wonders of the sea. I think when we go to heaven, um, there will be a serious interrogation at the gates with St. Peter and maybe even God might intervene and one question might be did you see the sea or what did you think of the sea and I I think an answer to say well actually I never bothered going out in it wouldn't go down very well Now there's a good thought to hold on to Brother Anthony Keane on the importance and fascination of boats and the sea In the cold, icy waters of the Southern Ocean, Edward Bransfield was keeping lookout on a British expedition ship in January of 1820 when he saw Antarctica, the first man to set eyes on this vast icy continent. A native of the village port of Ballinacurra in East Cork, he'd been press-ganged, that's forced into service from his father's fishing boat in Cork Harbour into the British Navy, where he rose through the ranks. So an Irishman under the British flag was the first to set eyes on Antarctica. But unlike Shackleton, Tom Crean and others, his name is not widely known, a regrettable failure of national knowledge about our mariners. We've been reporting on this programme, the efforts of a committee in East Cork to change that and they're very close to doing so, having raised the money to pay for a memorial which will be erected to Bransfield's memory in Ballinacurra near Middleton in January, 200 years after his discovery of Antarctica. I've been to see the sculptor of the memorial as he worked on it, carving rock into the preservation of the memory of a forgotten mariner. I'm standing now in the yard of... Matt Thompson's sculpture yard, if I could call it like that, at Churchtown South on the East Cork coastline, not far from the sea. And Matt, looking at what I'm seeing in front of me, uh, rather like a big lump of stone, yet it's going to become a memorial. That takes a fair deal of work. It does, yes, particularly because uh, this this big piece of stone was actually a rough boulder, which is quite difficult to get a, a shape into, you know, because it's not you're not starting with a rectangle or a, 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 a simple shape. You're starting with a very rough boulder. So that was quite complicated. I mean, it's taken two weeks to get us to the point we're at now, um, which is just the outline shape. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it has been quite a bit of work to get to this point. Now, 
I'm looking at it coldly in, in my light and seeing what looks like a, a maritime beacon almost. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. That was my idea, really. Was um, I was thinking as Bransfield was a, a commander on a ship, which means he was in charge of the safe navigation and working of the boat, um, that it would be appropriate for his home place to have a, a kind of a beacon, um, a kind of a marker, you know, for, for Bransfield. So that was my, my idea with this. I was basing it sort of on the beacon in Baltimore, on that kind of shape. And, uh, and also because this stone isn't, uh, it's not the best quality stone, you can't be sure of it, so you couldn't do anything too complicated. So yeah, my idea was to make a, a, a kind of a beacon with uh, maybe some lettering on it, an inscription, nice inscription with nice hand-cut letters. And, uh, and I thought um, for the navigator, he should have a, a sextant and, uh, and maybe a carving of his ship on the back. And also for the Antarctica, a penguin, I think was very appropriate. And it's local stone. Yes, it's local stone from Balnacurra. Um, they really wanted, the committee really wanted to use some, a local stone, you know, so that, that's, that's why we use this, and which is why, which kind of then led on to this design of a beacon. So the whole process has been, you know, it's kind of happened naturally, you know, to get to this point. I just get the impression when I see you working around there, it's a difficult, demanding task yet you seem enthused by being a sculptor. Yes, that's true. You, you, you have to be, really. It's such a, it is hard work, and it, you know, stone is an unforgiving material. So you really do have to love it. You, know? you have to love what you do, otherwise you wouldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, I do. I love what I do. Yeah. And your father was a sculptor before you? He was, yes. My father uh, was supposed to go into his family business of bakery, uh, but he discovered stone carving instead, really, and he absolutely fell in love with it, and, uh, and he did that and brought me up with it, really, as part of my life. So it's been part of your life all along. And it, 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 it is an, your father had a connection with Seamus Murphy, the famous sculptor. He did, yes. My father, um, when he started stone carving, he, uh, he met Seamus in Cork and, uh, and they got on very well. And when Seamus eventually passed away, he left his unfinished um, work and his, all his tools to my father. So it carries on to a historic occasion in, in, in making this memorial because... I'm surprised by so few people, as the memorial committee found when they started, knew about Bransfield. Yes, I know. I I, I don't just heard about him just before um, the committee approached me. But I, I was uh, I was I lived grew up in Ballantubber and I'd never heard of him really up uh, at that point. I was quite sad really because I used to sail in around those waters and I used to sail up to Balnacurra and I never knew about this amazing man who had discovered Antarctica, which would have been a great thing to know as a child. Well, your memorial when it goes at Ballinacurra in the in the next few months, well, next year, it 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 should remedy that. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, I think it will. Sculptor Matt Thompson preparing the Bransfield Memorial, and Ireland's round-the-world sailor Damien Foxhall is going to help raise awareness of Bransfield in the Antarctic itself. He's heading down there to lead voyages in the area which Bransfield explored, with Lucy Hunt from Sea Synergy in Waterville, County Kerry, who's reported for this island nation from her marine scientific work along the Irish southwest coastline. In 1654, when then-Chief Justice of Ireland Henry Cromwell wanted to get everyone of Irish blood out of Dublin City, he ordered them to move two miles from the capital. That decision created great maritime communities that have survived the test of time in Irish town and Ringsend, where I always like calling into the welcoming Poolbeg Yachtland Boat Club, which was where I met Damien Foxhall and heard about his project in Antarctica. First of all, Damien... I caught you in an unusual situation, studying rather than lecturing. That's right. Here we are in the Poolbeg Yacht Club in Dublin. And of course, you know, in any profession, you need to 
um, you know, keep make sure you're fresh and up to date, and even you know, revise some of the material that we should know, which is inherent to our own skills. So, you know, being a mariner, if you like, uh, every couple of years we'd have to do survival at sea, safety at sea, uh, you know, putting out fires, setting off flares, and, and it's always very useful. And here we are this week. Um, just uh, revising uh, long-range radio, satellite communications, and uh, you know all the type of stuff that we're, most of us are fairly well used to uh, at sea. But of course, it's great to see it and being taught by a great instructor here um, at the Poolbeg Yacht Club. And how has it been to be, uh, if I may say, a student? <laughs> the word I'm looking for gets the grey matter going again <laughs> it's been a while I'm actually my left hand I'm a Kitog so my left hand is strained from all the writing over the last four days <laughs> Lucy coming to the real project we're here to discuss you're starting a project down in Antarctica associated with Bransfield yeah it's very exciting so we're heading down to Ushuaia on the 20th of November and we will be taking people on Kyoto expedition boat down to Antarctica so we'll be down there then until um, February end of February 2020 bringing expeditions around the Antarctic Peninsula. And what's really exciting is that we're actually down there on the 200th anniversary of Edward Bransfield's discovery or first charter of the Antarctic. And the reason you've decided on this, Damien? Well, I mean, you know, being a being a southwest or a, you know being a carry man you know i suppose we're never that far from the water and i guess there's an inherent awareness of people like tom creed and shackleton and and uh, and to a lesser extent uh, you know but hopefully that's changing now of course edward bransfield and that's an amazing story there so and, you know myself someone told me the other day you know you're 10 around the world events that's that's further than to the moon and back so you know, I've in that time I've sailed around the Antarctic Peninsula. I've seen bits of ice, small and big, that have broken off that continent. Last year we were as part of the ocean race. Our the boat, the, our boat that was entered in the race, broke its mast and ended up in the Falklands. And it just coincidentally, it was the end of the Antarctic season for the tour operators. Uh, about 15 sailing boats and other small cruise ships operate down there um, throughout the three summer months and they were just finishing their season arriving into the Falklands and so I met um, Skip Novak's uh, team and a couple of his boats and then this company Quixote Expeditions and we got on really well straight off and it really perked my interest. I said you know I'm, I'm serious about you know being interested to come and work with you and sure didn't I get the call um, six months later, you know, just a great example of, you know, put yourself out there. You never know what might happen. And uh, six months later, we got the call and Lucy said to me, you know, you have to go ahead and do this. Uh, and it wasn't just a call for myself. Uh, so they typically the skipper puts together his own crew. So I'm going down there with the first mate, Niall McAllister, who set up West Cork Sailing. He's a yacht master, ocean instructor. Um, he's a professional seagoing mariner and does a lot of work, for instance, with uh, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. And uh, Lucy's, uh, as a marine biologist like Niall McAllister, um, they've worked together before. So we've got a great team and we're going to be joined by um, Caesar, who is a young man, uh, electrician, engineer, who's worked down in Antarctica previously and has a lot of ice experience. So... It's a, it's a medium-sized, 65-foot, purpose-built aluminium catch. Uh, very comfortable, um, nice 
cabin house, uh, the boat you can operate from inside pretty much. Very little reason to go outside apart from maybe to drop the anchor and uh, tie up the mainsail when you when you arrive. And uh, so we're really looking forward to something that's going to be new for for, for most of us. Uh, I think we're going to be very familiar with looking after guests, and we're going to have an onboard scientist during every um, you know every two week session. Um, and so you know it's uh, we're well familiar with uh, you know charter work and looking after guests. Doing it in the context of Antarctica is just hugely exciting. Uh, you know, a lifetime experience, I think, for all of us. Yeah, um, it's fantastic, the Irish contingent heading, heading to Antarctica. So we're really delighted. We are Team South, is what we've named ourselves. Um, so teamsouth.ie is where you can find out a little bit more on um, ourselves and the expeditions that we'll be doing. Lucy Hunt and Damien Foxall headed for Antarctica. And driving back to Cork from Dublin on a dark, wet evening after that interview, I met many trucks hauling containers. And as truck drivers have told me, we should note how important they are to the maritime sphere. Ships deliver the containers across the seas. Trucks carry them on shore. They are vital to our maritime sector. So, as they told me, spare a thought for the truck drivers. Now Justin Marr runs up other maritime news. Fishing gear, which has been abandoned and lost at sea, makes up most of the plastic pollution in some parts of the world's oceans and seas, according to a report by environmental charity Greenpeace. More than 640,000 tonnes of nets, lines, pots and traps used in commercial fishing are dumped and discarded in the sea every year, according to the United Nations. That's roughly the same weight as 55,000 double-decker buses. All of the equipment left in the water is known as ghost gear because it's been abandoned. The plastic can trap large marine animals like turtles, dolphins and seals, sometimes causing them to die painfully. More than 300 endangered sea turtles were killed last year after swimming into what was believed to be a discarded fishing net in southern Mexico. Greenpeace says urgent action is needed to tackle the problem. It also wants the Global Oceans Treaty, a worldwide UN agreement, to pave the way for a global network of ocean sanctuaries covering 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. Donegal-based organisation Liquid Therapy, which provides ocean, surf and water therapy for young people with physical, emotional, behavioural or intellectual needs, has been named the National Lottery Good Cause of the Year. Liquid Therapy also won the Sports and Recreation Award. The National Lottery Good Causes Awards honour the inspiring work and achievements of thousands of projects, clubs and individuals from all over Ireland, who, with the help of National Lottery Good Causes funding, have had an extraordinary impact on their local communities. Liquid Therapy was established in Bundoran in 2011 to provide one-to-one support for young people who wanted to experience surfing but are unable to participate in mainstream opportunities due to various physical, emotional, behavioural or intellectual conditions. Finally, a Swedish team has salvaged hundreds of bottles of liquor from the wreck of a ship sunk during World War I in the Baltic Sea. Ocean X, a group that specialises in salvaging alcohol from shipwrecks, said it was testing the bottles from a cargo bound for Russia to see if they were still fit to drink. The group brought 600 bottles of cognac and 300 bottles of Benedictine, a herbal liqueur, to shore on the 22nd of October after recovering them from the wreck of the Kairos, which was sunk by a German submarine in 1917. 
bottles of the cognac produced by the now-defunct distillers de Hartmann and the Benedictine are being tested in a laboratory. Peter Lindbergh, who led the expedition, said his group located the wreck nearly 20 years ago, but lost the position, finding it many years later. His team are optimistic the bottles have not leaked, as there is still a layer of air between the cork and the spirits inside, and many of the cognac bottles were sealed with a thin layer of tin. Mr Lindbergh hopes the spirits can be sold at international auction houses, where he has put previous finds under the hammer, and hopes they would command a high price. I don't know if I can afford to keep a bottle for myself, he said. The RNLI, the Lifeboat Service, needs your help. From its Irish offices in Swords County, Dublin, Neil Stevenson explains its difficulties. It's not that unusual to hear about storms in the work of the RNLI. Many of the charity's call-outs happen in the worst of conditions and the lifeboat crews often head out to sea when most are seeking shelter. But there is a storm that we are asking people to head into and it's the RNLI's forthcoming Christmas appeal, The Perfect Storm. It's the biggest appeal ever undertaken by the charity and it comes at a time when lifeboat crews are busier than ever and people still need our help. The Ornali is seeking to recruit 12,000 new supporters during the campaign and raise much needed funds for the lifeboat crews. The Ornali is facing a perfect storm. People continue to be extremely generous to the charity, but overall fundraising has dipped while our lifesavers are busier than ever. Whether at work or at play, more and more people are visiting the coast and inland waters and too many people are drowning. The charity will be asking people to help their local lifesavers in braving the perfect storm so we can continue for generations to come. The Ornali has been saving lives at sea for nearly 200 years and we aim to be here in another 200 years time. The Perfect Storm is a non-restricted fundraising appeal, which means the charity will spend the money wherever it is most needed. This includes helping to provide equipment and training for our lifesavers. You can learn about it first by visiting oranali.org forward slash support dash us. We recently had three of our lifeboat operations managers retire. The role is an important one on station. Not seagoing, the LAM runs the station and is the primary point of contact with the Coast Guard in the event of a call out. They are hugely important and it can be a tough role to fill. Pauline Dunleavy from Kilrush Ornali, Peter Irwin from Dunahidi Ornali and Kevin Byers from Bangor Ornali have all recently stepped down or are about to step down. Pauline also held the position of helm and lifeboat press officer and she once told me that she had been persuaded to join the crew after turning up to butter a few sandwiches during the meeting that was held to establish the station. Saying goodbye is a sad part of the Ornali. Everyone involved with the Ornali in Ireland would have crossed paths with or certainly heard of our former engineer Michael Carmody. A clear man with the soul of a poet, he was much loved by everyone. He recently lost his fight with motor neuron disease and his funeral service had the Ornali threaded throughout it. Michael cared passionately about the volunteers and lifeboats in Ireland. He loved being out at the stations and he had a saying for every occasion. He worked until he physically couldn't and up until very near the end, he took phone calls from lifeboat crew around the country wanting to know all the news. He will be much missed. Eriashte Gorev Aanam.
Neil Stevenson reporting from the RNLI, the vitally important lifeboat service which needs your support. Author and historian Philip LeCain emails to let us know that the RMS Leinster website now contains a database of all the people who were aboard the ship when it was torpedoed off Dunleary near the end of World War I in 1918 and that adds another resource to the work the group does. Now to the rivers of Ireland and the latest angling news. Hello to all the anglers listening in. Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries Ireland here again to give a quick roundup of the news from the world of fishing. There's a wintry feel to the weather, and from what I hear, some parts of Donegal have already had their first snow. Unfortunately, there's been a fair bit of rain falling on and off, which can make the fishing less straightforward. Anyway, ordinarily, the cold on its own wouldn't be enough to put off winter anglers, but because here in Ireland, there's plenty to fish for right through the coldest months. Pike anglers traditionally prefer to fish the winter. November through February always see the biggest fish caught, as the hen pike pile on weight ahead of their breeding season. Even on the coldest days when the pike are hugging the bottom of their river, lake or pond, a well-presented dead roach or mackerel tail can tempt a big fish, even though the pike should, in theory, not need to eat. On top of that, small variances in atmospheric conditions during the day, air pressure and, to some degree, temperature, can also see fish that were practically hibernating suddenly feed voraciously, if for very short periods of time. For the pike angler, this is what all the sitting about and waiting has been building up to. Coarse anglers can also get great fishing all through the winter, particularly on the larger rivers, which can remain a little warmer than some other water bodies if there's not been too much cold rain. For the sea anglers, this time of year is all about cod, and while it was going well in places like Waterford, Heall, East Cork and Cork Harbour in late October, the fishing has become a little more patchy since then. The baits that are working best are lugworm cocktails with crab or mussel. A lot of cod anglers don't rate fish baits for cod, Maybe because they draw in more crabs, and the crabs can strip your hooks pretty quickly when they're about. The other thing to consider for anyone looking to catch a cod from the shore is wind direction and weed. Some bays and estuaries fill up with floating seaweed that hangs up on your line and eventually hides your bait from the fish altogether. When the weed is bad, you're better off moving location. Staying with sea angling, bluefin tuna are truly iconic species of fish Almost everyone is aware of the incredible high regard with which the Japanese hold this flesh of this ocean-going species. There are tales that go round of million-dollar specimens sold at auction at the Japanese fish markets. And it's important to note that the stories are largely true. At the Toyosu market in Tokyo earlier this year, $3.1 million was paid for a single fish. The quality of bluefin tuna flesh, the legendary sashimi and sushi that can be created from it, the level of consumer demand and the prices that these fish can realise is not a good mix. The result is that unscrupulous commercial fishing has driven the stocks precariously low. Charter boat skippers and adventurous anglers have targeted bluefin tuna in Ireland for decades, but in recent years the practice came to a halt and even fishing catch and release for bluefins was not permitted. But this summer, a new project saw the charter skippers, anglers and researchers come together to fish for these tuna in a sustainable manner, releasing all fish caught after tagging the fish and recording valuable data. Before the fishing commenced, there was training for those involved to ensure that the fish were released in optimum condition and more or less guaranteed to survive. In the end, the 15 authorised boats fished with great success and over 200 tuna were caught and released with all the tagged fish surviving but the majority of the fish were met in the northwest, so the original season was extended to November 12th to build a better profile of the tuna swimming off the south and southwest coasts. This project was called Tuna Chart, 
and through the work of the authorised skippers, the anglers and Inland Fisheries Ireland, we are increasing our knowledge of the behaviour and abundance of bluefin tuna in Irish waters. Tuna Chart was a pilot project for 2019, so here's hoping the scheme continues next year. By the way, on the subject of research, if anyone listening in is interested in working in the freshwater environment, Inland Fisheries Ireland has three research officer jobs available at the moment. The poster for three separate projects, Brown Trout, Catchment Care and the Environmental River Enhancement Project. To find out more, visit fisheriesireland.ie. Well, that's all from me this week. Safe fishing to all and don't forget, CPR saves fish. Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland ending this edition of this Island Nation produced at CRY 104FM Yole on the East Cork coastline with technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast on community stations around Ireland in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Connemara Community Radio and Convara FM Galway Radio Corker Boschkeen, Clare, Kilkenny City Radio West Limerick 102 FM, Community Radio Castle Bar and now Eris FM in Belmullet, also County Mayo, Cork City Community Radio, West Cork FM and Community Radio Bear Island. Whatever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio and you can contact the programme on thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555 197. That's email thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555 197. Until our next programme from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>